Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn in the Bible to Romans chapter 9, that's, to Acts chapter 9. That's where I'm uh, going to preach. We've been preaching through the story of the church, God's creation of the church in the book of Acts. The pastors in our church uh, use the um, ESV, the English Standard Version of uh, the Bible. Uh, we believe it's, uh, there, there's a number of good translations of the Bible, and uh, we think this is among the very best of them all. Um, you know, when I was a, um, younger, there were uh, people would say the King James, King James. I grew up with the King James version of the Bible. You know, King James, uh, if it was good enough for the Apostle Paul, it should be good enough for us. Um, well, King James was about uh, 1,500 years after the Apostle Paul. Um, uh, that Bible is uh, got the, the, the beautiful King's English, um, but uh, the Bible's translations we have today are even more accurate, uh, right down to the finest point. You know, last week I was preaching about um, the Ethiopian eunuch, and, and if, you'd, if you'd have been following in your Bible, you'd notice that somewhere we come to verse 27, and there was no verse 27 um, there, because... Um, uh, the, the scholars determined it was an addition. And the way that's determined is they have the oldest manuscripts that we have of the Bible that go all the way back to the first century. And uh, they compare them, uh, each one of them, and they can see what were the original because the Bible was given to us. This is not the original. The Bible was given to us in Hebrew and Greek, the Old Testament Hebrew, the New Testament Greek. So we have to translate it, right? And so it said something about the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember how Philip went up to his chariot and, uh, and then it says, and he, they saw water and he was baptized. Well, some scribes, because that's how the Bible was, you know, there were no printing presses, they had to copy it over, decided they'd embellish it a little bit. And they said something like, and uh, they saw some water and so he professed his faith in Christ as his Lord and Savior and he was baptized. Yes, want to make sure that, um, uh, that you understand that you have to profess faith before you're baptized. Um, and so um, scholars have uh, um, said, well, that's not really in the original version. Some scribe decide they're going to make the Bible even better. Um, so we have, um, we should have the highest confidence that what we hold in our hands is the very truth that God uh, gave through uh, his prophets and, and apostles. And uh, one of the great things that we can be thankful for is the word of God. Got it? So let's see, we took up the offering, we dismissed the kids, ready? Everything to go? We're headed towards the Lord's uh, table, beautiful um, beginning of Thanksgiving week. So why don't you stand, I'm gonna read from Acts chapter nine. Starting at the first verse. We've read of um, Philip, Philip uh, bringing the gospel, um, we read of the spread of the church in Jerusalem and Judea. Philip goes to Samaria. Um, Philip goes um, to an, an African, which would, would have been the uttermost parts of the earth. He's converted. 
And now we read that the gospel reaches um, the most unexpected, the most unexpected conversion, the persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. It says in chapter nine, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, isn't that interesting? That's what the, um, the, this movement of people who were becoming disciples of Jesus was called in the ancient church, the way, right? Uh, the, the, the enemy of Christianity says these people of the way. Where do you think that might have come from? Referring to um, those who follow Jesus who said, I am, the, I am the way and the truth and the life. So Christians were called the way. Uh, so that, if Saul says, if, if he found any of those belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, about 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus, and approached Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Bible, it's a, it's a, it's a, a Jewish manner of communication that when you repeat someone's name, it, it, it has a certain emphasis. David, when he weeps over his son, says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Now the men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. He went to Damascus to um, apprehend Christians, to bind them and lead them by the hand back to um, Jerusalem to be imprisoned, beat, perhaps even executed. But it's Saul himself now who's blind, captive, being led by the hand into Damascus. Um, it says, for three days he was without sight. He neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to Ananias in a vision, Ananias, and he replied, here I am, Lord. The Lord said, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Jesus, by the way, that street is still the main thoroughfare in Damascus today. You know, remember, when we're reading the Bible, these are actual historical events. This isn't the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Damascus is a leading capital of the world today. Jerusalem's still there today. The way uh, there is still there today. The street is still there today. This isn't that long ago, actually, in world history. So Ananias was told, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of, of Judas, I want you to look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in now lay, and lay on his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard uh, from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, 
For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Jesus, we've just read of how you interrupted the life of Saul, claimed him for your own and sent him out as a servant of yours. And his writing and his work has made it all the way to Lakanto, Florida. And we read what this man wrote in his letters to the churches, in his book to the Romans and the Galatians. And it has changed our lives. But Jesus, by your power, that you could arrest this enemy of yours and make him your own, would you do the same in this room? Lord, some here belong to you. Lord, they, may they be reminded of the wonder of that. And Lord, some here do not. May you interrupt their lives. And why not today? For your glory, we pray. Amen. Be seated, please. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus is the most important conversion in the history of the church. The account of Saul's conversion is included three times, three times in the book of Acts. Nowhere else in the Bible do we have anything like that, that something is told to us three times. It's as if God says, I want you to know what happens when Jesus interrupts someone's life and changes them. <clears throat> and, and, and then I want you to hear it again. And, and, and then before we move on to anything else, I, I want you to hear it a third time, right? It's that important. What happened to Paul has to happen to us because Jesus says, um, unless you're born again, right, um, you will not see the kingdom of God. When I was a kid, uh, when I was younger, uh, they used to, uh, there used to be uh, people who would talk uh, unfavorably about uh, um, born-againers, you know. They'd say, um, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those born-again types. I'm not a born-againer. Well, Jesus says, if you're not a born-againer, then you don't belong to him, right? So uh, it matters. Being born again um, uh, matters. Um, so what is it, you know, what, what is it like to be converted? Um, listen, there's no um, standard pattern for conversion. It can be dramatic, right? Uh, this is pretty dramatic. It can be very quiet. Woman told me last night when she left, she said, I was 39 years old. I was in a terrible marriage. I was just bereft of hope. And I lay in my bed one night and I prayed that God would show himself to me, that I needed him. I needed him desperately. And she said, when I woke up the next day, I felt his love. 
said, when I took a shower this morning, I felt like the water that was cascading over me was the love of God, and my life has never been the same. You see, it, it can be dramatic, it can be very quiet uh, and personal. It can be sudden, right? There are people whose story is, you know, I, I walked, uh, um, I, I entered a day with, without any conscious knowledge that I was seeking God or, or open to God seeking me, and before the day was over, I belonged to God. I had no anticipation uh, whatsoever that that would happen. It, it can be absolutely sudden, or it could unfold over many years, right? Of dancing around it, of running from God, of hearing God's voice, of of saying no, of thinking you're converted, of maybe being converted, of you right, and then finally the coin drops. Um, so there really isn't a pattern, um, right? It can be highly emotional. And a problem is, is sometimes people will have an experience and then they'll assume that's everyone else. If you haven't had their same experience, then you're probably not the real deal. So it can be highly emotional, right? Um, or it can be just the most satisfyingly rational. Right? So what does it mean though? What does it mean to be converted? Well, it's more than being convinced. There's a lot of people that say, I believe. I think that's what it is to be a Christian. I believe that there is a God. I believe that Jesus is his son. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins. I believe that Jesus, um, um, you know, um, rose from the dead. And uh, I believe all that. Well, the Bible kind of pops that balloon, you know, because what the Bible says is um, that even the demons believe that, okay? Those are just facts, right? That's just information. It's like saying, I believe that the Boston Red Sox are a baseball team. Uh, I believe that Carl Yastrzemski and Jim Rice and, and Carlton Fisk are great players from the Red Sox. I believe the Yawkey family used to own their, you can know all sorts of facts about the Red Sox, but Hey, maybe, you're, you know, that doesn't mean you're a fan, right? Doesn't mean you're an adherent of, uh, um, that doesn't mean you understand how evil the Red Sox are, right? Um, so no, you can, uh, you can have all the facts about Christianity. You can, you can even be someone who's studied the doctrine. Um, but, but there's a difference between being convinced and having a collision with the grace of God that interrupts your life that transforms you deeply and that unites you to Jesus and his family um, forever. Your conversion is the single most impactful day of your life. I mean, what would it mean for you to be converted? I remember a woman coming up to me in church with tears um, coming down her face not many years ago and she said to me, Pastor, I've just become a Christian and pastor for the first time. Life makes sense. Got it? Conversion, the wonder of it. You know, someone told me last night, they said, my husband was converted when he was a Presbyterian elder. He was an elder in the Presbyterian church before he was converted. How about you? What would it mean for you to be converted? I love the hymn that says, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. How about that even um, today? You willing to go there? 
Ponder that. What would it be like? How would it change your life if the love of God interrupted your life in a way it never had before? Ready? Let's go there. First uh, point is the initiative of conversion. So do you have to go hard after God to be um, converted? I mean, who's the seeker in this arrangement? Does God go first or do we go first? I mean, who's the hunter? Who's the pursuer? Well, let's look at the conversion of Saul. What would be the case? So Saul was really hungry for God, right? Saul was on his way to Damascus to find God, right? Saul wanted to be a worshiper of Jesus desperately. Well, that's not exactly the way the story unfolds, uh, is it? Saul is filled with hostility um, towards the church. We've been reading about it. Saul was ravaging the church. I mean, what a phrase. He's ravaging like a wild beast. He's, he's entering in. He's tearing the church apart. He's entering house and house. He's not only dragging off men, but men and women and committing them to prison. And, and, and we read in chapter 9, Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and he got letters of extradition. That's what he got. So that when, listen, it wasn't enough for Saul that, uh, that the oppression persecution of the church had driven Christians out of Jerusalem to the surrounding um, countryside, to the surrounding um, countries. That's not enough. He decided to pursue them even there. Let's get them. Let's go after them. Let's get every one of them. Nobody gets away. His rabbit in his pursuit. Saul's not pursuing Jesus. He's pursuing Jesus' family to kill them. He's filled, uh, you know, with uh, rage. He's ripping and ravaging the church. So who goes first in conversion? Who goes first? Saul, suddenly near Damascus, when a light shines from heaven and knocks him down at the feet of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I'm Jesus. Rise and go to the city and I'll tell you what to do. So what caused Saul's conversion? Did Saul make a decision for Jesus? No. Jesus decided, interrupted his life, and claimed his life for his own purpose. Saul had been resistant. You know, in one of the other places in Acts where he tells his story, uh, um, Jesus says to Saul when he arrests him on the road, Jesus says to Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? That's not a familiar term to us, although we know what it's like to goad someone on, right? To prod them, to, to poke them, right? Um, well, that comes from shepherding. Uh, you would have sheep, and the sheep, sheep are dumb. Sheep will run off the cliff, Right? Um, sheep will run right towards the predator. Um, and so shepherds would have a, star, uh, a sharp stick, right? And they could hit that uh, sheep in the haunches to get the sheep to go the direction it needs to go for its own. So why are you kicking against the goads? God's saying, I'm goading you, um, Saul, but you're kicking back against it. You're resisting, you're fighting me. Um, but he couldn't ultimately win, could he? Nobody is converted, I want you to know, on their own initiative. It's God who pursues, and God pursues. So it says this all throughout the Bible. No one seeks for God. God's the seeker. We're running away from God. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws that person. 
You did not choose me, Jesus said, I chose you. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he first what? He loved us, he pursued us, he sets his eye on us, he goes after us. So if you're sitting here today and you've been converted and you're a child of God, it's because he loved you, he pursued you, he took the initiative. Do you know how reassuring that is? you know how comforting that is? That means you didn't choose to become a Christian first and foremost. He chose you, which means you can't unchoose, right? It's God's sovereign choice to have you in his family and he doesn't change his mind. And we might say, what was he thinking, right? (laughs) Um, So do you see the authority of the creator to just interrupt a life? God is the hunter. Notice that God, God doesn't ask Saul's permission, right? There's no evidence of that. That Saul signed a waiver, right? To clear God of any responsibility. How many people says, I believe that we have free will. Are you kidding me? Have you read the Bible? Have you read the beginning of the Bible? When we choose to rebel against God and the Bible describes how we destroyed our will, we corrupted our will, we so ruined our will that our will is, is, is non-operative, right? Um, no, God in his sovereignty will enter right into your life and he'll take you. You know, the fisherman doesn't need the fish's permission. The cat does not seek the consent of the mouse, right? Paul is a cold, cunning, calculated killer, and he's no match for the divine interrupter. Now I want to ask, who do you despair? Who do you despair over? Who do you, who do you fear is beyond God's ability to convert? got to be somebody in your life that you've thrown up your hands and said, I don't, I don't think that person will ever become a Christian. It might be your spouse. It might be your parents. They're old. They're set in their ways. They're blind to the truth. Could be your kids. Could be one of your children. They're so far from God. They're so resistant to God. Raise them in it and they've run as far as they can run. Um, who do you know that's farther from God than Saul? How many of those people you're worried about and heartbroken about are out there killing Christians? Well, I got a better question. Who do you know is a less likely Christian than yourself? When parents sometimes come and tell me, I'm so worried about my daughter, she's a mess, she's so far from God, I just despair of, of any hope for her. I say, have you ever looked in the mirror? I mean, God took you. I mean, the most amazing conversion ought to be your own. If he could open your heart and he could woo you to himself, then my goodness, everybody else, easy pickings, right? A friend of mine is a pastor, just a lovely man, describes his childhood in Philadelphia. It was... It was as dysfunctional a family as there could be, and it set him uh, uh, onto a life of, of wildness, even as a child, uh, even as a young uh, adult. He said when he was 16, he went to a dance, and he went to that dance for no other person than to pick up a girl for carnal pleasure, and at that dance, the girl he picked up um, was named Barbara, 
and has been his wife now for about 50 years. And he said what he didn't understand was when he picked up this girl, I didn't know she was a pipe bomb filled with grace. She was a Christian. She was a Christian. He didn't know. He wasn't seeking God. But God put Barbara and Barbara's family in his life, and he is the most godly pastor I have ever met. This is the way God works, right? There is no one he's seeking who can resist. So let me ask you this. Is he pursuing you? Are you kicking against the goads? You might be new here hearing this, but you know what? He converts Presbyterians too. Um, you know, I know people, I, and, and I bet you do too. I know some people who are Christians who are kicking against the goads and some people who aren't. And their life is broken and they are a mess and what do you say when you look at that? You look at them and you say, turn to him. You, you think you're resisting him. You think you're, um, you know, you, you think you're so smart. You think you're so, <laughs> you're only ruining yourself. You have no idea what you're missing out on. I remember when I was young, I, I heard a guy say, he said, you know, when the fisherman hooks the fish, and it can be a real battle, you know, to get the fish in the boat, but he said, stop and think about it. It's only the fish's blood in the water. It's not the fisherman's. I never forgot that. I mean, when God hooks you, get in the boat. You can make it a long fight if you want, but it's only your blood in the water. God's not sweating this. He's not, well, oh gosh, they're tough. You know? Get in the boat. Say yes. Say uncle. Your life will make more sense than it's ever meant before. With me? God takes the initiative. God's the hunter. God's the pursuer. Secondly, what do we learn about Conversion. We learn something about transformation. So God grabs you, he interrupts your life. That's not all he does. He transforms it. Listen, the prodigal son came home and his father greeted him, ran up the road, embraced him and kissed him and welcomed him home. But I promise you the next day they had a talk, right? We're not gonna have any more of that prodigalness. Not in this house, because I'm your dad, right? God makes you his and he makes you new. But some churchgoers truncate the gospel. They, re they reduce it to this, you know, Jesus takes you as you are. Jesus, doesn't matter how broken you are, doesn't matter how lost you are, doesn't matter how far, far you are, Jesus takes you as you are. Now here's the, here's the, here's the challenge to that. Here's why, it, is that's absolutely true, right? Look at Paul, this is a perfect example. Paul's got blood on his hands and Jesus takes him, right? We don't have to clean ourselves up. Paul didn't have to do 10 years of evangelism before he's acceptable to God, right? We don't clean ourselves up. We don't make all things right. We don't um, um, become worthy. We don't produce a righteousness that God says, okay, okay, I guess you qualify to be in my family. No, in all our mess and all our rebellion and all our um, 
God takes us. He takes the attic. He takes the broken. He takes the proud. He takes the arrogant. He takes us right where um, we are. And I remember a guy in our church said, he was coming here all the time. He seemed to love the place, but he wasn't a Christian. He said, I can't become a Christian because I love, I love women. I love gambling. I love booze. I love them too much. I don't want to give them up. I said, don't give them up. Bring them with you. You're not going to give them up till you have something better. You got to get Jesus. So bring all that, scoop that all up and come with all of that into the family of God. You got it? Yeah, come as you are. Come as you are. Everybody is welcome. Come as you are, but Jesus will not leave you as you are. He will not leave you as you are. Um, he has the authority to totally, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away, and behold, all is made new. So, so Saul's a good example, right? Saul's the bloody murderer of God's people. And so when Jesus apprehends him on the road, and he draws Saul into his family, and he sets his love on him, and Saul is baptized, he doesn't say, now just kill less Christians. That's not what he says, right? Saul. Remember when the woman, uh, Jesus interrupts because a group of men have taken a woman caught in adultery and they've thrown her at Jesus' feet and they've got stones ready to stone her. And Jesus says, let he among you who has no sin cast the first stone and the accusers leave. And Jesus says, where are your accusers? They're gone. Neither do I accuse you. And then he says to her, I love you. Go back to your adultery. What does he say? Go and sin no more. I take you as you are, but I don't leave you. And look at Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the most hated man in his town. Zacchaeus up in the tree. Yeah, you, I'm coming to your house for lunch today. The whole town was with, why would he associate with that slime? They hated Zacchaeus. They hated the tax collectors. In front of all of them, Jesus said, I associate with people like Zacchaeus. Tax collectors can come to me. And before the day is over, Zacchaeus is giving back the money that he stole because Jesus takes you as you are, but he doesn't leave you as you are. He transforms you. Do you know there's a guy named Jeffrey Dahmer? You know what Jeffrey Dahmer was? He was a serial killer up around Milwaukee. And just to put a little special touch on his serial killing, he cannibalized the people he killed. Trigger warning, if you're going to heaven, he's gonna be there. He's converted in prison. The chaplain says he grows in the faith beautifully. So when Jeffrey Dahmer's converted in prison, he grows in the faith beautifully, then God would have said to him, you know, you'll probably still kill your cellmate as a Christian, but just don't eat him. Well, you get the point? Yeah, come as you are, but God's not leaving you there, right? When you have a personal encounter with the risen Jesus, I love it because when, uh, um, when um, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul says, who are you? The Bible says, who are you, Lord? But that word Lord can, can easily be translated, who are you, sir? Who are you, sir? His authority. Conversion is a radical life transformation. Leslie 
Newbigin writes it this way. Think of Saul's conversion, he said. It requires Saul to admit that his most passionate convictions are wrong. And that what he thinks is the service of God is actually fighting against God. And that he is required to stop in his tracks, turn around, and renounce the whole direction of his life. His conversion requires Saul to love what he hated and to cherish what he sought to destroy. Isn't that amazing? I mean, think about what Saul had to do. The whole direction of his life, he's got to turn and go the other direction. The very people I was killing ardently, now I'm one of them. Now I defend the faith I was fighting. Everything he sought to destroy now becomes his love, his passion. You see what I mean? It transforms you. Um, Jesus has the authority to totally redirect our life. But let me tell you something, that's what we resent. You know, our problem isn't just that we're sinners. Our problem is that we don't like God. Saul, Saul, why are you what? Wasn't just resisting me. Well, he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you going your own way? He says, why are you what? Persecuting me, persecuting. We fight God, we resent God's control. Jesus says, don't call me Lord, Lord, and then don't do what I say. You know, it's very often that you hear people say, I think God's a God of love. I think he accepts everyone, just as they are. This is the kind of God I believe. This is, this is my kind of God. And I tell you, you can, you can worship the real God as he reveals himself, or you can craft your own, right? That's your choice. And if you create the real God, he's just a mannequin, right? You can yell at him, you can tell him what to do. Um, but the real God talks back. God will tell you things you don't want to hear, and God will tell you um, things about himself that you won't like, and he'll tell you things about you that you won't like. The real God has the right to break into your life and say, this is what I want you to do, and this is what I want you to stop doing. The clay does not tell the potter what to do, right? The potter shapes the clay. So there's a pop artist named Adele. She's quite popular. She released an album, I think, for the first time in five years. This is what she had to say about it. I wanted, through this album, to explain to my son when he's in his 20 or 30s who I am and why I voluntarily chose to dismantle his entire life in the pursuit of my own happiness. She's referring to divorcing um, her child's father. As to the circumstances of that divorce, it just wasn't right for me anymore. I didn't want to end up like a lot of other people I knew. I wasn't miserable, miserable, but I would have been miserable had I not put myself first. So what would Jesus say if Adele said, Jesus, I want your counsel. I submit my life to you. Uh, I suggest that he might have told her some things she didn't want to hear. And certainly he would have told her the way to life is not to love yourself before everyone else, before anything else, before your own son, right? That's the real God, the real God. And let me tell you, you wanna look at transformation, look at Saul's. I mean, he gets a new calling, right? Um, he's, gonna, he's gonna be God's messenger to Gentiles, to kings, to Jews. He gets a new intimacy with God. When Ananias finds him, what's he doing? He's praying, right? Think about that. 
Um, the very same tongue that breathed out threats are now breathing out praise. And Saul has an immediate willingness to serve Jesus at any cost. Look at what it says in chapter nine about the cost to Saul. God says, I'm gonna show Saul how much he must suffer for my name. This is the same chapter. Not many days later, the Jews were plotting to kill him. Their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night to kill him. Couple verses after that. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. Do you know that? Just like that, guess who was enemy number one? Saul, hunted, hunted, pursued, attempt to kill him. The entire rest of his life, he is public enemy number one to the enemies of Christianity. Saul is utterly transformed. He takes that on, right? Utter transformation of a life. The wolf is now the shepherd willing to die for the sheep. The power of God to change a life, right? The murderer of Christians writes one quarter of the New Testament that you may well have read that led to your conversion. I can say it was the book of Romans. I can say it was the book of Galatians that changed my life. From the pen of this man, it's transformed life. Aren't you glad that God not only welcomed him, but he what? Transformed him. He made him into a new creation. You with me? Great stuff. Oh man. Power of God to transform her life. I remember this woman coming to her church, her husband wouldn't come. He was religion, Christianity. Yeah. He's mad at her that she was converted. And one time I actually, uh, I, I said, all right, I'm gonna um, try to get with this guy. I found out he played racquetball. Um, so I, I, I called him up and said, hey, you wanna go uh, play racquetball together? And, uh, and we played racquetball together. I mean, I'm such a good Christian, I even let him win. And, um, and uh, I, I remember in the locker room afterwards, I wasn't gonna talk about Jesus, anything, anything, anything. I knew how skittish he was. I just said um, in the locker room, I said, have you ever actually um, ever come to church with your wife? And uh, he said, no. That was it, that was it, that was it, that was all the, and um, I asked his wife a week or two later when I started, did he say anything about our time together? She said, yeah, he said you tried to cram Jesus down his throat. <laughs> it wasn't really that long later he was converted. He became an elder of this church. He became one of the best elders we ever had. The power of God. It's astounding. It's still at work in my life. How about you? He's still changing us, isn't he? He's got a lot of work to do, doesn't he? So last of all then, it'll lead us right to this table, the restoration of conversion. God interrupts our life, he transforms us, and part of that transformation is the most important thing that has to happen, it's restoration. When the creation starts, Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're at harmony with each other, and then suddenly Adam is blaming her, and then they have children and one is killing the other and mankind is at odds with one another. So the first thing we see happens here is that there's reconciliation. The killer, Paul, what happens to him? God says to Ananias, 
a Christian in Damascus. I want you to go to Straight Street and I want you to go to the house of Judas and I want you to find, you'll find there a guy named Saul. And, uh, and what does Ananias say? No, no. I don't want this mission. Do you know who he is? How do I know more than you, God? This guy's a savage. Why in the world would I want to go find this guy? God says, go, go. So Ananias goes, and what does the Bible say? When he found Saul, he laid his hands on him. He prayed for his sight to be restored. He went in, and this man's on his face on the ground. He hasn't eaten in three days. He's blind. And Ananias goes in and lays his hands on him and says, brother, brother Saul, you shouldn't be able to hear those words without feeling the emotion. You shouldn't be able to hear those words ever without feeling the emotion. Brother, brother, do you realize Ananias knew people that Saul murdered? He lays his hands on him brother. The power of God to unite people together, even people who have deeply wounded each other. Conversion changes enemies into family and friends. I'll tell you something. We have such polarization in this church, in this world, but I'm going to say not in the church. We will not allow it in the church. It is not fitting for the people of God. If Ananias can walk in that room and lay his hand on Saul and say, brother. I read a review this week that somebody in the church wrote about another church member's business and they castigated them by name. This is not fitting for the people of God. You may have a problem with someone, you go deal with them face to face. You don't publish it on social media. That's not the way we act. I don't care that everybody does it. I don't care that you are mad. I don't care that you've got good, bad service. Blah, 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 blah. It's wicked. Get off of social media if you can't control yourself. I read this week of someone associated with our church who called one of the most godly pastors I know this week a socialist. They have no idea what they're doing when they poke God like that. This is not the way God's people treat each other. Do you know, when Saul came to speak in churches in Jerusalem, just imagine there were mamas that would have to lean over to to their child and say, that man up there, he killed your daddy. He's our brother. They knew the people he killed. And Ananias goes and says, Brother Saul, you know, you're about to come to the Lord's table. You know what the Bible says? If you got a problem with somebody, you shouldn't even come. You should go and make it right with them. This is real. This is the real deal here. Um, 
As far as, it's, as far as it's up to you, be at peace with all men. You can't make people like you, but you can do the right thing on your end. And you know the best part of coming to the Lord's table? I just gotta tell you that when you come with your empty hand, the person who hands that to you, the people around you, some of them are Trump voters. Some of them are Biden voters. They might be standing right next to you. Some of them are vaxxed, some of them are unvaxxed. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves, everybody is his old enemy, right? Brother, we're reconciled to one another and even better than that, we're reconciled to God. We are reconciled to God. Um, Saul's confused because one thing Saul knew is that Jesus is not the Messiah. You know why Jesus isn't the Messiah? Because Jesus died on the cross. Because the Bible's very clear that if you die on a tree, you're cursed by God. If you're hung on the tree, you're cursed by God. This man was cursed by God. He could not be the Messiah. Big problem then when Saul's on the road to Damascus and the risen Jesus shows up. So what does he know now? This man who clearly is cursed by God is, the, is resurrected from the dead. He is the son of God, but he's cursed by God. What do I do with that, right? And he's got three days blind on the floor of a house in Damascus, praying, trying to figure it out. And he's thinking, he's trained by Gamaliel. He's as well-trained a Jew as there is in the Old Testament scriptures. He knows it all. And guess what? The coin drops for Saul. And he puts it all together. What did it mean when Abraham, when God told Abraham to kill his own son, but at the last minute God put a ram in the thicket instead, that there was a substitute, so that the curse that should have gone to the son of Abraham went onto an animal instead, right? And he's reading about the sacrificial system and the Passover lamb and, and, and the lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And then Saul suddenly, suddenly gets it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Why are you persecuting me? Saul could have said, I haven't touched you. I haven't touched you. What are you talking about? What's Jesus saying to Saul? I so identify with my people that if you touch them, you touch me. This is the older brother. These are my, this is my family. You touch them, you touch me. And Saul realizes that's it. He so identifies with his people that the punishment they deserve, he takes it on himself. All their guilt and sin and transgression, he so identifies with us is his. And all his righteousness and obedience, he so identifies with us is ours. And Saul is reconciled to God takes the mantle of, of this truth and gives it to the whole world. This proud, pharisaical older brother comes home and feels the father's kiss. That's what we're about to reenact when we come to this table. Broken sinners who've been kissed by the God and welcomed home. You know, in the Jewish culture, when a boy wanted to marry a girl, 
Um, his father would take, uh, everyone would be assembled from the two families when he, when he wanted to be betrothed. The father of the groom would take a, a wine and would pour it in a cup like this. And, and then the son would take that cup and he would approach the girl, right? And he would offer her the cup. And if she took it and drank it, she was saying what? Yes. Yes, I accept your invitation to be married. So brothers and sisters, Jesus says this cup represents the making of a new covenant, a new marriage for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink it. And when you do, you're saying what? Yes. You're getting in the boat again. You're saying yes to the love of God. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.